See, I believe that we as a church are moving from a season of holding ground to a season of taking ground. We all know that we can't stop a change of season. How many of you know, no matter how much you don't want winter to come, it's coming. No matter whether you like it or not, you can live in denial, and denial is not a river in Egypt. Sorry. You can live in denial, <laughs> or we can prepare for it. Seasons here are a lot different to where I come from, Durban, South Africa. Uh, it's subtropical, and a cold front in South Africa, and we saw it on, uh, on the television. The temperature was dropping to 15 degrees C, and they were saying, be prepared for a cold front. And so... <laughs> So seasons don't change much there, but in a nation like Canada, you know that if you live in the, in the um, central Canada or far north and so on, that you have to be very prepared for that change, because if you're not, your life is at risk. And I feel that God, not talking about our lives being at risk, but I feel like God saying, prepare your hearts for what God wants to do. We pray for the lost, we reach out to the lost, and this is an amazing church that does that. But prepare yourself, because when they come, church can get really, really messy. You might not be parking just outside the door or in the car park when people come in. They might not look like or sound like us or know the so-called religious protocol and all of these kind of things. And I've been in a, in a church that went into revival, and it was chaotic. In fact, one of my friends in a place called Peter Marisburg, um, their church um, had a prolonged revival, I'm saying, for about six months. And so many people were getting saved every week, lining up and lining up and lining up, that they had to phone every church in the city just to come and fetch some of these people because they couldn't contain it. An amazing place to be, but these are the times where we can be prepared for that, to see not only um, Oceanside filled with people seeking God, but see every life-giving church in the city prospering, to see church plants in the city, to see people going from this place and planting churches. I believe that's the season that God is bringing us into. Nanaimo has a population, the greater Nanaimo from Nanus through to the end of Cedar, uh, somebody, one of the estate agents was telling me it's a greater area of about 140,000, which is amazing. 97, it was about 80,000 or so. And so many people have come. But the crazy thing is that uh, one of the pastors um, somehow did a census on um, contacting churches and how, what is the average attendance of, of the churches uh, over the city. And there's about 36 uh, churches around here, and he worked out adding all of that, that less than 5% of the city go to church, if that's anything to uh, relate to a, church, a, Christ, a, a, a person being a Christian. So that means we've got work to do. That means there's 100,000 plus people in the city alone that need to know of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not going to happen by people 
walking in these doors, and God does draw people into churches. But Jesus never called the lost to come to church, but he called us to go there and be the salt and light, to go into all the world, neighbors and nations, and through our lifestyle, um, so, uh, help people's hearts be softened so that when the seed of the word is sown into their hearts, don't worry about it. We cannot make that seed grow. We can plant seeds of love, seeds of compassion, uh, the word of God into people's hearts. Uh, and Paul says this in, in Corinthians chapter 2. I planted the seed. Apollos, who was a fellow worker in Christ with them, came along and watered that seed but it was God that made it grow. And I just want to free you from this. So you cannot save anybody. How many of you were able to save yourself? No one. But we can sow seeds, eternal seed, that will maybe look like it's been rejected in front of us, but somebody else will come along with a good deed, with a hug, with a cup of coffee. Jesus says, the ones that I commend uh, in Matthew 25 were the ones that when I was in jail, you visited me. When I was thirsty, you gave me a cup of water. When I was hungry, you fed me. And what you did to the least of, the least of these, you did unto me. We are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. And I believe this is a season that we're going to go into of harvest. But it takes us preparing our hearts, praying for it, and positioning ourselves for God to be able to use us daily as we walk out our door. God has given each one of you a mission field. And do you know the amazing thing about your mission field? He actually pays you to be a missionary. It could be a builder. It could be a McDonald's. And you have an opportunity to shine the light of God and actually get paid for it. Amen? Isn't that amazing? So you all paid missionaries. He's using the, the wealth of the, the world to pay you to be salt and light in that area. And when we're faithful with little, God adds to us. And I felt this, and I said this before, that God is transitioning Oceanside from a cruise ship mentality to a battleship mentality. And when we come into the church, yes, it's, uh, cruise ships are awesome. So I'm not against cruise ships. How many of you have been on a cruise ship? Amazing. Amazing time to relax and get rest. And we often need time to rest and enjoy our families and friends. So it's not wrong. But how many of you know that you couldn't live on a cruise ship? How many of you know that if you eat, ate six meals a day, <laughs> you'd more than likely die within a year or something, and they chuck you overboard or something? <laughs> but that's the reality. And I believe that God calls us, and God says that not only are we are the family of God, not only are we the bride of Christ, but we're the army of God. And when you're on a cruise ship, and you're sitting by the pool, and I know some of you have heard this early on, but I just felt to remind you, uh, in your deck chair, and in the middle of the week, the captain comes along with some of his, got his, all his regalia on, and he's walking, and you, in your, in your deck chair, he's really happy to see you. I ask you, how's it going on the 
cruise ship and said, it's amazing. We're absolutely enjoying this. And he has a big smile, and then he moves on to the next one. Well, on a battleship, I challenge anyone to get a deck chair and put it on the flight deck, sun tanning, and see what happens when the captain of that ship comes past. There's a whole different response. I think you'd be fed to the sharks or something like that. So it's a different mentality. And when people come in, we want them to belong. We want them to know they love you. We want them to know that we care for them because people need to belong before they will behave. People need to know they're loved and cared for. So this year, the gathering of the priesthood of all believers is not only for us to reach out to our, our friends that we see once a week, but to reach out to people that we don't know in this building, especially as it fills up, so that they too can belong. But this isn't it. This is the huddle in the midst of the game where we come together and be challenged and refreshed and empowered to go out there and to be the salt and light that God's called us to be. A battleship is a place of taking ground. A battleship is a place that brings peace, actually, often. We know sometimes a battleship just has to move into uh, an area and all the nonsense stops overnight. Yes, there's war involved, but we are at war. There's a kingdom of darkness. And in Matthew 11, um, Jesus said, Since the time of John, John the Baptist, the kingdom has sat, of, of heaven has suffered violence, and violent men will take it by force. It's not a physical, physical violence, but it's a, it's a resolve within us that we are not going to step back, but we're going to step in. Because I promise you, the enemy is quite happy for us to come once a week to a church, worship songs, and take communion and all of these wonderful and, and, uh, and keep us contained as long as he keeps us contained in these four walls. There's nothing to worry about because I believe, and we can, uh, we have a theologian here, Mark Manfredi, and so I'll pass you on to him. But I personally believe that once you're saved, you're saved, truly saved. The question is, was that person saved in the first place? To me. I don't see God with a cosmic eraser, eraser in the Lamb's Book of Life, scratching my life or raising my life every time I sin. And then every time I repent, writing it back in there. It doesn't make sense to me. But there are people that aren't saved. And so I believe in a sense the enemy has lost the battle for the souls of the saved. That's me. You can have other views and they all fall within orthodox Christianity. But that's what I believe. But as soon as we step out of this place and we begin to want to advance the kingdom. He comes like a roaring lion. He's not a lion with accusation, with this, with failure, with offense, all of those things. And we shrink back. He says, okay, one more week. We get out the next Sunday, and he comes again. The Word of God says that we are not to be unaware of the devil's schemes. Ephesians 6. That we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. 
and he wants to contain your effectiveness. And listen, we are imperfect people, saved by grace through faith. And we're going to make mistakes daily, and we're going to sin daily. But God has already made a way through His Son, Jesus Christ, that our sin has been forgiven and set free. And we confess 1 John 1, 9. Very simple. It says, if you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I've, I haven't got even off my first point here, but I'll have to stop sometime. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We see in Hebrews chapter 4, we see this, that Jesus Christ, and we understand the, the whole premise of Hebrews is the old and the new covenant. But in Hebrews chapter 4, it says something that is an amazing, amazing scripture that brings life to all of us. And it says this here. In verse 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, yet was just as we are, yet was without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace and help us in the time of need. So what does that mean to me? I've had a a day, things may have gone right, some of it wrong. I might have said or done something that I don't like and I'm full of condemnation and I say, I'm I can't do this anymore, and God, I've let you down again. I want to um, equate that with working on a construction site at the same time. I go to work, and it's raining and full of mud. I get all the stuff on me. I'm still building. I'm still building the house and doing my job, but I'm all full of mess and muck. So what do I do when I get home or before I go to bed? Hopefully, I have a shower. And wash all of that muck off me. Now, if I didn't do that every day uh, of the week and came to church on a Sunday, you might not even recognize me. Be so full of muck. And so God wants this personal relationship of not because of law, but because of grace. And this is how it works to me. We come to the throne of grace. By grace, Hebrews 4 tells us, and when we come into the presence of God, and Hebrews 10 tells us we come through the body of Jesus Christ through a new and a living way, and when we come into the very presence of God, we do not get what we deserve. God cannot look on sin. But because of Jesus Christ, instead of receiving judgment, We receive mercy. And mercy is simply this. We get what we don't deserve. And then we come out of that as we've confessed our sin and so on. 
And we come out of that place, and we find more grace, it says there, to help us in our time of need. And that's why we need to constantly be coming to the throne of grace, not for because God is lonely or insecure, but because we need it. We need it daily. And some people will say, well, if God has forgiven our sin past, present, and future, why? Let me go and see that here. If I can find it. Why, if, we, if he past, present, and future, why do we have to confess our sin? Well, confession of our sin is for our benefit, not for his. Because he has never sinned, and he doesn't have to confess sin. But what it does, and we'll see this in Hebrews chapter 10. Sorry, Jay, it's nothing. Jay's still trying to read my notes and get the scriptures up. It says this, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, how? By the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way, opened up for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. How? With a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith. What is our faith in? Not in us, but in Jesus Christ and the finished work of the cross. That's the whole point of Hebrews. With a, with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed by pure water. And you see the daily washing of God on us. You see, where the enemy gets us is in between these two fingers, in our head, in our mind. The battle of the mind. Mike, you've got all this muck on you, and you want to go out and share the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ? You're not worthy. How can you? No, I can't. But I come to my father and say, Father, it's right. I, I want to confess my sin. I want to lay them at your feet, not for his benefit, but for mine. Because what that does is cleanses my conscience, a guilty conscience. Condemnation is what hinders the church more than anything else. We come in on a Sunday, and we, the, God is saying, enter in. Enter in through this new and a living way, through faith, coming to the Holy of Holies, through Jesus Christ. And people are worshiping around us, and I'm, we're standing, I can't do that. On the way to church, this happened. Yesterday, that happened. That happened. Our conscience, go to the throne of grace. Get rid of that stuff and understand that your conscience has been cleansed by Jesus Christ. And then we can go on. And on this walk ahead that we have, if we are contained for another year in this building, we might be, it might be a wonderful thing. But what about the nations? What about the people out there? And we cannot do it outside of Him. I shared this. A while ago too, but I felt in God just as we come into the season. That God is taken to a place in the shift of our faith and belief in Him. 
where we don't focus on what we don't have, but what we do have. God, I can't do this. I don't have this. I don't have the money. I don't have the education. I don't have that. What education did the disciples have? More than likely the best, <laughs> sitting with Jesus. And education is good, and Paul says, study to show yourself approved, and we need to rightly divine the word of God. But you can be saved 10 minutes, one minute, and you can go and share the love of Jesus. You might not have much, but have what you have dedicated to the Lord. And we saw this in Exodus chapter 3, God, the call of Moses. He had messed up really badly. <laughs> he was running, hiding, and God finds him and speaks to him through a burning bush. We know the story, and he says, Moses, I have called you, the one that ran away in fear and has been hiding as an exile or a refugee or whatever for all this time for fear that Pharaoh might find you and kill you. I'm going to send you back there. And you're going to deliver my people. I've heard their cries. The cries are going over this world every day. God hears every single one of them. And one of them says, God, I stutter. I don't even speak. And he has this conversation, all the things he doesn't have. But he's holding his stick in his hand, a staff. And he says, how am I going to do that? He says, throw that stick on the ground. And we know the story of the plagues and so on. God used a stick in the hand of a stammering man to deliver a nation. Amazing, eh? We also looked at this. Young David, left out in the fields by his own father. Samuel comes along, anoint the new king. David isn't even considered. You know the story, Samuel goes through the sons and says, do you have any other sons? I'm not getting it. I don't feel like one of these is, is to be king. And he says, oh yeah, I've got David. He's out there somewhere. Can one of you fetch him? Anoints him king. Israel is at war with the Philistines. David goes there to give some food to his, his, uh, his brothers and so on. And uh, we know the story of David and Goliath. And with a few stones and a sling, God delivered a nation through a shepherd boy. We see that with Jehoshaphat. Armies of the Lord are coming against him. He does something that was absolutely incredible in that time as a king. You see, when we get attacked by nations and when the church gets attacked, even Oceanside and or so on. I want to ask us, what is our first response? You see, Jehoshaphat saw these nations coming against him. He saw all of these things. And if I was a king, I like to try and put my, um, not what would Jesus do, but in these situations, what would Paul have done? What would Jehoshaphat have done? And all of this, because these are real people. And so I would have, if I was Jehoshaphat, I would have called my generals and said, listen, we've got 100,000 uh, barbarians coming after us. How many soldiers do we have? 
10,000. Well, I don't know. How many chariots? How many of this? And let's say we had 90,000, they had 100. I said, okay, well, I think we can take them on. And we determined by how much stuff we have. But what Jehoshaphat did is he declared a fast and he inquired of God. That was his first response. And I'm asking myself, God, may that always be my first response to inquire of you. His ways are not our ways. His provision is not subject to governments and things like that. And he declares this fast. And he can read the story. And God gives him a plan. And this is the plan. This is how crazy the plan is. He says, I tell you what, Jehoshaphat, get the armies together, but in front of them, put the worship team with the tambourines and harps and let them go along in front of the armies like this, singing, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Hey, BJ. You see why I'm not in the worship team? And they do that. I bet you his generals were going crazy. I bet you if they had a vote and not a king, they would have voted him out. But they do that. And as they're worshiping God, God sets these two armies that now have raged against him. They come together and they attack each other. And they sing in this side of the hill. They don't know what's going on the other side of the hill. I don't know what's the other side of your hill, what you're going through, what chaos is going on. And they're singing like this, and they get to the top of the hill, and both the armies have killed each other. And for, I think it says seven days, they collected the spoil of the war. And he delivered a nation with a dancing worship team. We've got some good worship here. How's that? Gideon. Let me find this most afraid guy in Israel, and I'm going to deliver my people with him. He's in a wine press. There's, some people say he's very brave, some are afraid. I'm not worried about it. There he is. An angel of the Lord comes, sees him hiding. He says, come, you're going to deliver the nation. You're a mighty warrior and so on. And, and not only does Gideon say, I'm the least of the least from the least of 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 the least. When that argument doesn't work, he starts blaming God for his issues. It's your fault. Why are we like that? Gets over that one and says, okay, I'm going to put some fleeces out here because I really can't be me. It just cannot be me. Gets through that whole thing. He's going to engage the army. They say that that army had 130,000 people in that. He can round up 32,000 people. And he goes and he's got this and he's thinking, okay, not so good, but let's take him on. And God says, that's way too many people. He shrinks that army down to 300. And we know the story. Delivered a nation. And Gideon became one of the greatest judges to rule Israel. And one of the bravest. 
You see, God can use a stick. He can use a stone. He can use a worship team. He can use a man hiding. And ever wondered why he would choose to use us. And this is the reason. So that he alone will get the glory. God will not share his glory. It's when we humble ourselves. You see, God is raising up the priesthood of all believers. Not superstar pastors and, or singers or evangelists. And we need generals in God's army. And we, there are people that reach millions. And I'm not against that. But the greatest threat to the kingdom of darkness is not a great preacher, teacher, or worship leader, or evangelist. Because if that person falls, it creates more havoc for the kingdom than before, often. But when the priesthood of all believers, that's you, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, full of the power, the incomparably great power that is with us who believe from Ephesians chapter 1. The power that raised Jesus from the, dwells in us. Dwells in us. God has empowered every single one of us and anointed. There's no more anointing for one than the other. The difference is maybe some have faith and maybe some have not. And all we need is a little mustard seed. You see, when you realize that you have the anointing authority to go in this, into all this world. Let's get back to Mark here. We won't go to any of those notes today, but I think God is speaking. The commission of these disciples, that this is authority for you and I. And we need to trust and believe and walk in it. You see, when we all pray and we all go out and say, well, how did that person get healed? We don't know. God. Not we flew to this place and that guy was there and if God tells you to do that, please do that. I'm not against that. But God. And this is talking to you, the commission of Christ. To go into all the world. See, God didn't tell the church to come, the people to come to church. He told us to go to the world. And preach the good news to all creation. And whoever believes in and baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name. In the name of Jesus. They will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poisonous, it will not hurt them at all. They'll place their hands on sick people and they will get well. Some people say, oh, I can just go and drink poison. God will heal. Don't test God. But let me tell you, we go into nations and places where there's a lot of sickness and disease. We've got to trust God, and he's giving you that, that authority. And I think it's in Acts chapter 4, and I'm going to finish with this. Peter and John. 
Acts 2, Holy Spirit has come. These guys are empowered with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. At salvation, we receive the Holy Spirit in us, the indwelling Spirit of God. Every single one who is born again is born of the Spirit. But at Pentecost, Acts 1.8, Jesus was speaking to his disciples who were already uh, saved. And he said, wait and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The Holy Spirit is in you. You're born again. Now it's going to come upon you and it's going to be full of power and anointing so that you can go and do these things in my name. And in Acts 3, it says this. On the day, on one day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, while he was put where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. And Peter looked straight at him, as did John, and Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get some money from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And taking him by the hand, he helped him to his feet. Hey, listen, I don't have any bucks on me. I know what you want is money, but what you need is healing. It goes on in here. The whole city is an uproar. They take him before the Sanhedrin. This is just over 40 days after the crucifixion, 40, 50 days. We know that the high priests and all of that were afraid of losing Jesus' body because they're afraid that he may be risen from the dead. And so they're trying to squash Christianity at its source. And so they go before the Sanhedrin, and they're asked, how did you do this? And this is why he entered what Peter replied in verse 8, Acts 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today by an act of kindness shown to a cripple, and we are asked how he was healed. Then know this, that uh, you and all the people of Israel, it was by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. That is why this man stands before you healed. They go on, verse 12, salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to men by which men must be saved. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized this, listen to this, that they were unschooled 
ordinary man. But, and they were astonished, but they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Can we close our eyes, please? Church. The enemy is the master of mind games. I can't do this. I don't have anything. I'm not worthy. But Jesus says, that's why I died. Because I am worthy. I've come to set you free. I've come for you to be my hands and my feet. I've come for you to share the light of the gospel so that no one should perish. I've empowered you. I've saved you. And I've forgiven you. And as you bow your heads now, I just feel, just for your own sake, if you have a guilty conscience today, and I often have one, come to the throne of grace. Ask God to forgive you, although he has already. It's for your sake. Ask God to cleanse you. Go under the shower and the waterfall of the Holy Spirit right now and let him cleanse you. In the book of Ezekiel, the word of God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Lord, I pray that you wash away the muck and the dust. I pray that in the precious name of Jesus. Holy Spirit, come. If you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you might have gone to church your whole life, and I commend you for that. The Word of God says this. Hold on a second, sorry. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and in that process is able to take your sin upon him and pay that price and all you need to do is ask God for forgiveness and ask him into your life ask the Lord Jesus and you're saved You come out of darkness and into the light. And you that have been, are struggling with your past, I feel God saying there's no future in your past. Smash that rearview mirror. 
Open your hands and allow God to restore. Many people I feel in this, in this place have been hurt even by the church and by people, by leaders. I feel Jesus Christ he say that he weeps over you. Well, he never did that. He never left you or forsake you. The Holy Spirit asks you to come and just begin to rain down. Wash away those hurts and those pains. Church, it's a new day. We have work to do. Not in our own strength, but in the strength of Lord Jesus Christ.